welcome to another, well, the latest, <laughs> at least in terms of this recording, episode of History Pop, where we talk about history, fictional, fictionalized, or otherwise. Today we're going to be continuing with our newest uh, series on medievalisms, slash whatever time period we're talking about, depending on the film, uh, of Disney. So today we're actually going to be chatting about one of my very favorite of the... Uh, well, it's, is it Disney? It's Well, Pixar's owned by Disney, so we'll go with it. But the Pixar princess movie, Brave. So, hold on to your bows and try not to shoot those arrows yet. <laughs> oh, God, I'm a dork. And stay tuned for Brave. Uh, also, there are no spoilers in history, but there will be in this podcast. Stay tuned. back. Uh, so once again, this is Courtney working on the latest episode of History Pop. So thank you for sticking around for uh, our new posting schedule. It's been kind of hectic with uh, just life happening. I ended up spending the last week down at uh, my university to um, check out and you know actually I had out so many books and I had renewed them so many times from the university library that they needed to physically see that I still had them before they could check them back out slash renew them so a library trip was in order and I also had submitted my latest chapter of my dissertation to my advisor and we wanted to sit down and chat about it so that was exciting and fun I love it my research and organization's great but my writing needs work which honestly you know what is totally fine because the writing should need work at this stage, and that is actually the easiest thing to fix because it's all about revision for the, from that point on. So I'm working on my next chapter, which I am actually honestly having a lot more fun with than I thought I was going to, so that's cool. Uh, but anyway, we are here today to talk about one of my very favorite films, actually especially in the Disney pantheon, called Brave. Now, Brave was originally released in 2012, and I remember actually getting to see it at a second-run theater uh, in Hopkins, Minnesota. I was visiting some friends, and they had to go to work for the day. I'm like, eh, I'm going to go see a movie. And this is the cheap theater, so we're going to go see Brave. I hadn't seen it yet, and I was super excited. And I got out, and I immediately called my mom afterward, because <laughs> that's what Brave makes you do. <laughs> At its heart, Brave is the story of Merida and her mother, Eleanor, and how they learn to really treasure the relationship that they have and realizing that they do have a wonderful relationship and learning to see things from each other's point of view. Eleanor is the queen of Dunbroch, which is a kingdom that is pulled together by uh, with three other tribes. So we have, of course, the, the king of Dunbroch. Uh, we also have the Macintosh, the McGovern, and the Dingwald tribes uh, who are who come together with Dunbroch to create the kingdom of Dunbroch. So it's a coalition of uh, different tribes and they all chose to have the king of Dothbach as their leader and I forget Fergus that's his name Fergus uh, Fergus as their leader because reasons he is the 
biggest, to be honest, uh, bravest, he was able to get them to work together. Because uh, one of the things that uh, they talk about in Brave is uh, at the very beginning, we have Merida, who is the firstborn of Eleanor and Fergus, and so she is the princess of Dunbroch, which is interesting because actually at this particular point in time, which I'll have to talk about here in just a minute, Scotland didn't really have titles like princess or prince. Um, a prince is just a generic sort of term for a male royal, or unless you're Elizabeth I, or even Mary the first, actually. Um, you could use prince as a gender-neutral sort of term just to talk about a person who's in charge of other people, basically, who is a royal lord of some kind. But they didn't really use prince and princess in Scotland during the medieval or early modern periods to designate someone as the child of the monarch. So typically you would have... Uh, the eldest son of the King of Scotland, once we actually do have Scotland kind of coalescing into a kingdom, is the Duke of Rosse. Um, and then the girls are all just ladies. After the, the Duke of Rosse, you also have other dukes that come down the line and lower in rank depending on your birth order. But all the princesses, as we would understand them to be princesses or daughters of the monarch, are ladies. They're high-born, they are definitely great in the marriage market as items that you can sell to other kingdoms to for some sort of gain. Um, but yeah, no, they're not called princesses until much later. Uh, they are in England, but they are not in Scotland. And so trying to figure out when this is happening is super fun because we have lots of different elements of all sorts of basically this is just a pan medieval film it's very medieval like you can tell the medieval from the types of technology that they have available uh the clothing just screams medieval the landscape screams medieval and the fact that we have magic infused in the story so effectively uh is medieval as well with these different folk beliefs. Um, so we have uh, Merida, who is the princess slash firstborn of Eleanor and Fergus. And basically there's some sort of tradition, which is also confusing because Dunbroch is a new kingdom. <laughs> but apparently the firstborn uh, princess, or rather the princess of Dunbroch, uh, needs to marry one of the firstborn of the other three tribes, the Macintosh, the MacGuffin, or the Dingwalds. And so then they have to, each of the young men then has to prove themselves worthy of her hand by competing in a contest of her choice. And once again, I don't understand how this is a tradition because it's a new kingdom. So you probably aren't going to have a tradition because, well, this is the first time it would have been done. Since Merida, I mean, since Fergus is the first king of Dunbroch, and he didn't have any other daughters. <laughs> I don't understand how it's a tradition, but it's a good story. Um, but anyway, so Merida, realizing that she also is a firstborn, and she should be able to participate in these games as well, decides that the contest should be archery. Now, Merida has been training her whole young life in archery and horseback riding. And she is exceptional as an archer. And so it, it's a very beautiful scene where Merida uh, pops out of her dress and she's like, I'll shoot for my own hand. I absolutely love that line so much. And 
the other three um, princes, dukes, uh, who are shooting for her hand, some do reasonably well, some don't, uh, but Merida sh- outshoots them all. And technically she wins her hand, but then she also at the same time then dishonors and disgraces the other contestants by the fact that she completely outshone them. And I'm like, wait a minute. It's their own damn fault for not doing well either. So how does her being a girl and being better at it make it dishonored and emasculated and all that stuff? So we've got some fun gender things going there. But overall, Brave is amazing. Um, since we do have this very strong um, character in Merida who knows or at least thinks she knows what she wants and she goes for it. And she is a major mover and shaker in her own life and she hates other people infringing upon her own free will. And so she tries her best to take charge of her own life, to change her destiny. And so she doesn't want to marry uh, any of these dudes, which makes sense when you see them. <laughs> but I'm sure they're actually really sweet. But Merida, we saw, we see this from the point of view of Merida, and she definitely does not want to marry these guys. And so she goes into the forest and comes across a will-o'-the-wisp, which leads her then to a witch's cottage, who also carves wood. Um, don't conjure what I carve, dearly. Uh, and the witch gives her a potion that will help her change her destiny. But what Merida doesn't realize is that it actually turns her mom into a bear which is what happens she turns her mom into a bear and so then she and her mom have to flee the palace out into the forest and figure out what they're going to do so they can change her mother back and this is a big moment for both Eleanor and Merida because it's what really forces them to work together Uh, for a common goal because Merida didn't mean to turn her mom into a bear she wanted to change her mom but she wanted to change her mom's opinions rather than her mom's physical form and for Eleanor she really wanted to have Merida to be able to grow up into a strong queen she wants her to be able to be effective with what she does so she has independence as she is older and to be able to take care of herself in what is essentially a man's world, especially at this point in time. And to do that, you know, Eleanor is very effective at utilizing very uh, medieval queenly tropes. Um, you know, she is the one who is the delicate mannered she is the one who knows uh rhetoric and how to speak to large groups of people she knows how to command and she does so without necessarily even making it look like she's the one who is completely in command she knows how to theatrically uh defer to fergus when she needs to or sometimes she just pulls out the i'm the mom of all y'all because i'm the more mature one here and i'm the one in charge (laughs) um and but she can do that because she is coming at it from that motherly sort of trope as well as the proper queen sort of trope so eleanor only wants that for merited for her to be able to do that sort of, have the ability to perform those sorts of queenly acts as well. And she also, over the course of learning of this film, realizes too that she really does want Merida to be her own person. And she learns not to force Merida 
into her own decisions and to let her choose at her own pace. And she also learns to kind of let loose a little bit, which is wonderful. Um, but so they go into the forest and they leave the castle because there was a massive bear that had attacked her dad years earlier and he lost his leg to the battle. And so it's a major thing that they hate bears in this, in this country now. Um, yeah, so they go into the forest and they learn to trust one another. But as they slowly figure out that her mom is turning more into a bear in mind and heart, not just in body. And they make it back to the woodcarver slash witch's hut, who, and she's already gone for a convention of some kind. And the witch tells her that if they don't figure out how to end the the spell by the sunrise of the next morning the spell will be permanent and so then that gives them a little bit more of an urgency to trying to figure out how to mend what has been torn and so Merida thinks that this is the a tapestry that her mother had made her mother had worked really hard on this uh although a tapestry is technically woven not embroidered and it looks like she's embroidering it but anyway um so her, and in her anger and her haste, uh, in her first argument with her mom, she tore the tapestry. She used a sword and sliced it. Um, and Eleanor burned Merida's bow. So they both damaged each other and intended to damage each other, but then in the heat of the moment, and then realized afterward that they had both gone too far. Um... And so Merida, trying to right what's been wrong and uh, fix what's been torn, she goes back and she tries to get the tapestry. And eventually she does, but she does also then get captured because her dad thinks she's crazy because she's defending a bear. Um, and then this whole battle ensues and they uh, end up realizing at the very end that it's not the tapestry that needed to be mended. It was the relationship between Merida and Eleanor. And they do, just in time. Of course they do. It's a fairy tale. And at the end of the story, we have Eleanor with her hair down, riding uh, with Merida through the forest. And it's honestly pretty great. Um, but then we also have, you know, Merida committing herself more to her studies as well. So when is this movie taking place like i said before it's a pan medieval movie now when i talk about medieval uh the time period so i've talked about periodizations before and periodization is basically how historians break down chunks of time to make them easier to digest and explain uh and there's endless numbers of permutations to these specific specific <laughs> specific uh years and eras and how they're named and when they actually take place uh because depending on where you're talking about things hit differently like the renaissance the renaissance in italy happened a century and a half ish before it got to england uh for example and so medieval is one of those periodizations as well and when I talk about medieval usually I am talking about after the fall of Rome which and not even Rome because the Eastern Roman Empire continued on for centuries um actually a thousand years 
Just about. Um, yeah, because it was 1453 with the fall of Constantinople? I'd have to double check, but that's my guess. Anyway, um, but so it's the fall of the Western Roman Empire, which once again, everything in this is going to be very Eurocentric. Uh, that is how I was taught, but I'm doing my best to work against that. Um, but right now, that's how medieval is usually defined. Um, I would actually be really curious to learn about what medieval, if there was a medieval period in China or India. I don't know. Uh, there definitely was in Japan. I have studied a bit about Japanese history. But anyway, so medieval for Western Europe, uh, typically historians, when they mention medieval, mean means after the fall of the Western Roman Empire in 476. Now, of course, this was a also long process that started long before 476, but we're not going to get into that right now. I could talk about ancient Rome. That'd be fun. Uh, but so around 476 until we have the early modern period. And the early modern period, also different depending on when you are choosing. I would probably say the early modern period probably in the western europe probably started in 1517 with the 95 theses and martin luther um and the beginning of the schism in the church and the well that particular schism there's a lot of schisms um but the schism in the church and the reformations so we have a really big chunk of time another thousand plus years that is medieval and within the medieval period, we have, we, it's typically broken up into three other chunks. So we have the early medieval period. We have the high medieval period. We have the late medieval period. And so like the high medieval period is basically when you think of medieval, you're thinking of high medieval. You're thinking knights on horses. You're thinking castles. You're thinking princesses and lords and nobles and feudalism and all of those other things. When you're thinking of just generalized medieval, you're thinking high medieval. Um, now, with that in mind, it's really hard to think about and figure out when this movie takes place. Now, one, they actually did their very best to include um, both Celtic and uh, uh, so Celtic and Gaelic cultures. Uh, so we have like the traditional Scottish stuff. You know, they've got bagpipes, they've got tartans, which honestly really weren't a thing yet either. Um, yet tartans as identifying uh, particular tr clans didn't actually really happen until I think it was the 1700s, maybe the 1800s super late um but uh so we have tartans we have caber tosses but then we also have the more celtic influences especially in terms of like the styling of things it's much more of the visual aspects rather than um the audios which we get with the uh, uh traditional scottish there um but yes, and so we also have the belief in magic, which is not a universal belief. We actually have some people who are, some characters who talk about how the will of the lisps really aren't a thing, magic isn't a thing, but then it is. And so these more folk beliefs, these beliefs in magic, uh, also are very medieval, and that works. Um <sighs> Hi, kitty. Yeah. How's it going? 
I'm recording a podcast. Do you want to come and say hi? I'm sure that honestly, they're here to listen to you and not me. You want to come up? You can come up if you want to. Come on. Alright, well if you're going to just sit down there, that's okay. Well, then just stay down there and stop being annoying. I love you. Anyway, so thinking back then trying to figure out when this film takes place is a mishmash. And so we have the each of the uh, three different clans, the Macintosh, the MacGuffin, and the Dingwalds, uh, repelled some sort of invading force. And uh, then they all had to band together, uh, and then they became a kingdom of Dumbroch. But so it was said then in the film that the Macintoshes uh, repelled the Normans, who are the people from Normandy, and they actually invaded England in 1066 with the Battle of Hastings, and then William the Conqueror, or Billy the Bastard, depending on who you talk to. I'm usually the only one who calls him Billy the Bastard. Um, but William the Conqueror became the first Norman king of England. Uh, the MacGuffins uh, repelled the Vikings. The Dingwalls repelled... Kitty... He is upset about something. And the Dingwalls, uh, they were able to repulse the Romans. And so these do give specific time frames-ish uh, for when these events happened. We have the Normans. Uh, so the Normans didn't just stop with... Uh, invading England in 1066. They went to Ireland, I think it was 1152 and Henry II, uh, and then he made his son John the uh, Lord of Ireland. So we have the Norman invasion of Ireland. We also have the Norman invasion of Scotland, which was in 1072. So we have a very definitive year for the repulsion, the you know, pushing back of the Normans. The Normans didn't really invade Scotland. They tried. It didn't really work. Um, we have the Vikings, who were probably the most successful of the invaders that we're talking about because the Vikings weren't really pushed back. They ended up actually colonizing a good chunk of Western Scotland, especially the islands, the Hebrides, uh, the or and Orkney. Um, Kitty, I understand you're upset, but right now I'm busy. Um, so we're just going to deal with listening to the kitty in the background. It'll be fine. He's okay. He is well fed. His litter box is taken care of. Is he going to puke? Or are you just being upset? I think you're just being upset because I'm not paying enough attention to you. Anyway, um, so, but the Vikings though were the most successful these invaders because they actually did colonize and they stayed there for several centuries uh and so they honestly kind of just kind of became part of the cultures of the area uh and then we have more of the the scottish culture coming in and pushing them out as well much later on around 1200 ish uh so we have from like 600 ish on until about 1100 ish is when we have the vikings actually being in power in Scotland. So we have a time range there of about 500 years of Viking supremacy. So yeah, none of that is really 
I mean, we have the overlapping time frame of the 1072, so it's possible that it would have been 1072 if we didn't think about the Romans. Because, like I said earlier, the fall of the Western Roman Empire, a.k.a. those uh, enterprising folks who go and conquer all these other places and steal the goods for themselves, the fall of the Western Roman Empire was in 476. So, if the Romans are invading, they probably didn't do it after 476. So, the time frames of the Normans and the Vikings doesn't really work. And the Romans did try to invade Scotland, try being the operative word, uh, in around 84. Yeah. So, which is still technically in antiquity, in the classical period. And antiquity in Scotland is going to look a lot different than antiquity in Rome. So, Honestly, the fact that this is so medieval, I mean, like I said, looking at the clothing, uh, it looks like these things, they actually did a really good job with the textures and the types of clothing that these people would have worn. They didn't have enough layers, but that would have been, I think, really hard to animate. But looking at, especially uh, Eleanor's hairstyle um, and her clothing, I think that they did a really good job of kind of capturing that medieval aesthetic. So we have um, underdresses, we have, they do have corsets, which I suppose would have been a thing, but that, uh, would have been a bit later in the medieval period. Um, honestly, I, th I tend to think of corsets, at least with the type of corset that Merida is being cinched into as more Victorian than medieval, um, really, honestly. Uh, I see more shape of uh, you know, form factor for dresses coming from the dresses themselves rather than from corsets. Um, but, I mean, corsets were definitely a thing, you know, in the medieval and on into the early modern periods. So, who knows? I would need to do a little bit more research into dress history for that. But looking at least on the outer form factor in terms of the types of cloth used. Now, the dyes are also super bright. We have the very bright blue uh, silk dress uh, that Merida uh, wears at what would be her wooing celebration party thing. Just to show off that she's a princess. Um... Uh, that actually is a really bright color, but that's not to say that it wouldn't have existed at that particular point in time. The medieval world was a lot more colorful, and so was antiquity, than we give it credit for today. I mean, looking at different portraits, looking at different statues, looking at different buildings, they have lost a lot of their uh, brightness, their vitality over time, just due to fading in age. And so looking at... If we do have some uh, material culture, things honestly were a lot brighter back then. Honestly, kind of gaudy <laughs> to modern uh, uh, aesthetics. Um, yes, my kitty is very upset. Anyway, um, so I think this is just going to be a little bit of a shorter uh, podcast this time around so I can go and deal with my cat. He's being very grumpy. Um, but just thinking, too, one of the major things that comes through, and what's really interesting to me is this thread that, starting with Sleeping Beauty, that I saw. And I'm going to see, I'm, this is going to be something that I think is going to be interesting to kind of think about um, going through 
uh, other Disney sort of works is young people choosing their marriage partners, which honestly, I mean, it did happen sometimes. Sometimes we do have young people who choose their partners and run away and get married and they're not, uh, you know, given that blessing by their parents. That did happen. But much, much, much more regular and usual and typical was your parents arranging a match for you. And so Merida, honestly, if we're looking at history, most likely would not have been able to choose her own partner, especially because she would have been a very valuable negotiation pawn in the marriage market for, you know, and, you know, as as a peacemaking tool, perhaps with different clans or other kingdoms nearby. And so she most likely would have had much less choice than would a shepherd's daughter. But at the same time, she also would have been far more educated. Now, at this particular point in time, I don't know if she actually would have been able to read or write. Um, That's actually something, because, like, the education for men versus women was incredibly different. Not just in types of the subjects that they were expected to be able to master, but the... um, Just the actual amount of education as well. And so... I don't know if she actually would have been literate. Maybe. Maybe not. Um, Definitely a possibility, especially being a royal daughter. But it would have been far less likely, or for far less necessary to have her be educated and literate than it would be for her brothers. Also, there's three of them. Who is going to inherit? Anyway. (laughs) So, what does this film say about its historical past? Um, honestly, in a lot of ways, I think it paints medieval Scotland as another one of those idealized, uh, civilizations that is in tune with nature. That's one of the reasons why we have magic as a thing. Um, usually when we see magic in the world, it's because we do have these beings who have this relationship with nature and having such beautiful, abundant nature, uh, in the film does kind of lend to an idealized past. Uh, what are the cultural and understandings that come from the history in the film? So what is it that, what are the lessons that we learned about history that maybe we didn't realize we were learning about medieval Scotland from Brave. Well, that they were doing caber tosses, that there were tartans, that there were bagpipes, that people believed in magic, which that one's actually true. Um, That we have tournaments to choose the uh, groom for a royal bride, that we have all of these tribes coming together in an honorable way, that we have peace as well as can coming together in war. And that women were actually able to affect change to, in some ways, while still remaining within some of the feminine confines, what was expected of being a woman in this particular time period. If you stayed within that, you were able to much more easily wield power uh, and influence, like in the character of Eleanor, than if you challenged conventions like Merida. But 
we do have, you know, the love of the family. We have Fergus, who absolutely adores Merida and indulges her in everything. And because of that, and then the understanding that she and her mom have, we do have this uh, then very interesting character shift for Merida. And how she then is also then able to, by harnessing those particular feminine tropes, able to affect change as well. And so it's growing up into some way what was expected of her, but also not at the same time. And so we have these understandings and that come from the film about expectations for medieval Scottish women or just medieval women in general. Uh, you know, being able to stitch, being able to speak, being able to have proper posture and look like you own the place, being able to command the room with a word. And also to be able to be the one who listens and can be the arbiter and come up with compromises. And what does it say about culture in its present? A lot like Sleeping Beauty, actually, we do have this theme running through of young people being able to make their own choices. And I have the feeling that that's going to be a major theme in all of these Disney films. Uh, we have, you know, looking at Belle, actually, kind of, and Ariel, and Cinderella. We have all of these uh, characters who, for some reason or another, aren't allowed to make their own choices. And so the struggle to find their voice, to figure out what it is they want to do, or to be able to do the things that they've already identified they want to do, like Tiana, being able to affect change in your own life, I think is going to be one of the major themes. And I, I think that's not necessarily much to do with the history, but much to do with the era in which these films are created and how that is something that is still a major shift from how teenagers and young adults have been treated or thought of in centuries past from the days of you know Grimm's fairy tales onward and I think that looking at that it says a lot about how we understand right now in our present moment or at least in 2012 when this film was made just exactly what a young person who has a dream like Rapunzel needs to do to be able to live the life they want and what sacrifices do they need do they need to make what challenges do they have and so I think that that as much as they set these films in other historical or fictionalized historical pasts that it does speak to the same challenges that so many young people are facing today so yeah I think we'll leave it with that. It's going to be a shorter cast today, but that's exciting and fun too. Um, and so then it will join me for our next History Pop podcast on the third Friday of this month, which is going to be, so this is the first Friday for the 7th, the 21st. Huzzah! Well then, I am looking forward to seeing you then. Or rather, you hearing me then? <laughs> And I hope that this has been as fun for you as it has been for me. And thank you again so much for sticking around. This has truly been a pleasure. This is Courtney for History Pop, signing off. Take care.
Courtney Herber. Intro and outro music written and performed by Jonathan Colton and used under a Creative Commons license. This has been a Turtle and Revenue.